Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Will Fenton, Lee Francis, and we show you El Vitre, authors of Ghost River. Our guests today are Lee Francis IV, Wishoyo Alvitre, and Will Fenton, and they are the authors of this book, Ghost River, The Fall and Rise of the Conestoga. Will Fenton, we'll start with you. You're the editor of this book. What does it mean to be an editor of a book like this? Oh, it just means I get to take all the credit. <laughs> no, uh, this, this sort of started as my crazy idea, and then I was uh, fortunate enough to um, connect with Lee and Weshoyo and get them involved as both the author and the illustrator of this volume. Um, this book really evolved from my doctoral work at Fordham University up in New York. This was sort of an evolution of a digital project that I started called Digital Paxton, digitalpaxton.org, uh, which was all about the Paxton massacres of 1763 and the subsequent pamphlet war. And in working on that, I became more and more interested in uh, the limitations of the very sources I was digitizing and trying to contextualize. And the fact that they really only gave voice to the Paxton vigilantes and their critics. Uh, they really effaced the native peoples at the center of this story. And so the goal of this was to really open this up and to reimagine the story from the perspective of the Conestoga, Lene Lenape, and Moravian Indians. Well, can you just, for people who don't know, can you give a little thumbnail a description of what the events were? Happy to, yeah. So in December 1763, a group of vigilantes named the Paxton Boys, they have the name Paxton Boys because they were from a township called the Paxtang Township, just outside of what is today Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, um, attacked the Conestoga at Conestoga Indian Town, just outside of Lancaster, and then pursued the remaining Conestoga people to the Lancaster workhouse, like the jail in Lancaster City proper. And um, they murdered 20 men, women, and children in those two discreet attacks. And then they vowed to march on Philadelphia, where the government had taken in a number of Moravian Indians, 140 Christianized Indians, for protection. And they got as far as, I guess it was Germantown, about six miles north of Philadelphia, where they were stopped by a militia and a delegation led by Benjamin Franklin, who persuaded them to disband and to publish their grievances. And they did that, and that sparked what is often called the Paxton Pamphlet War, which is this very rich, ugly print debate that occupied printers across the city throughout 1764. So when you decided that this should be a book, why did you want to go in the direction of a graphic novel? That's a great question. Yeah, so I mean, I'm an academic by training. I'm a big old nerd. And uh, the, the typical thing that somebody from an academic background, uh, the typical thing for them to do is to publish an academic monograph, to put out a book that's published by University Press and gets distributed to, you know, five or 600 university research libraries, and it is prohibitively expensive for anyone to enjoy okay. it. One of the, uh, the things that I wanted to do with this was to really open up this story, not, in, not only in terms of who was at the center of it, but also in terms of like who could have access to the story. Because I come from this 
rarefied circle of academics, early Americanists, who know this story very well. We've done a lot of really great work, but we're not so good at communicating the value and the stakes of this incident to a wider public. So I see, saw this as an opportunity to really think about how we could open this up. Well, Shoyo, when you were faced with the, the prospect of doing the illustrations for this, how'd you, how'd you learn what you needed to learn to do the, the drawings? Yeah, um, so initially, uh, Will invited us, me and Lee, and um, several other members that were part of our team to uh, several days to spend in Philadelphia, and they took us around not only the library company and the library company archives, but also to actual sites um, around Lancaster. So we went on a bus tour as well and visited historical sites as well as um, sites that were village sites uh, for the tribes that are involved. Um, we had consults as well. Uh, Curtis Zuniga was one of the, the lead consults on the project. And so it was really just sort of being thrown into this uh, large um, group of people and individuals that all had their specialties. Um, and then also looking at material, uh, you know, ephemera, the original cartoons that they used to circulate um, at the library company. So I was just sort of like a sponge and just taking all this stuff in over the, the days that we were there. Um, and then when I got back, I kind of, you know, put it together and let it stew for a little bit and how I wanted to tackle the artwork for the book. How, how many illustrations did you put in the book? Um, there's 60 pages to the book, and then each page consists of like uh, sequential art. So it's it's comic book art, they're framed. So I don't know the count of how many individual illustrations, but 60 pages of pen and ink art. And Lee, you, you wrote the, the script, the text for the book? Yep, and that is correct. What was involved a, in that? I mean, how how uh, collaboration went back and forth between you and Will over this? Yeah, absolutely. So Will came out to, uh, I'm also the founder of the Indigenous Comic-Con um, out here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, this would have been our fourth year. Uh, now we're all inside. So we did the digital version. Um, and Will came out two years ago and had this crazy idea. He's like, hey, you know, I got this, I got this crazy thing and I need some illustrators. And I was like, well, let me help you out. You know, we got native illustrators here and I really love the project. And, you know, I've, I was like, well, let me throw my hat in the ring as well. If you're considering writers for this, if you don't have one already, you know, I would like to be part of this. I think this is a really good opportunity, you know, not only for me as a comic book writer, but also just to, to be able to tell this really incredible story. Um, and, uh, and, and fortunately was selected, we show you and I had worked before on, you know, my, our comic book, Six Killer. Um, and so I was like working with her. I've, I've worked with her on a bunch of other stuff too. Um, so like, it's, it's always great to be able to, to synthesize with someone that you already know. And so, you know, Will orchestrated this sort of like this whole like project. It wasn't just like, Hey, we're going to throw a script at you, you know, start doing some research and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and we'll see what the final product is at the end. We'll all edit it. It was, it was more of a, it was, it was much more deliberate. Um, it was, it was the field trip for the, you know, it was the research trip out to Lancaster, out to Conestoga Indian town. Um, to meet with a number of the historians that were a part of this process, um, to learn more about the people that would be engaged with this, you know, with, with Curtis Zuniga and, and the Native folks that were there. Um, you know, and, and I think most importantly was to be able to meet the people of the community. So the, um, you know, the Native folks that are out of Lancaster, um, you know, that, that we hoped to receive their 
you know, they're, they're good, they're good spirits and they're good thoughts and let us let them know that we were trying to do uh, right by their ancestors um, and right by, by the native folks that were, you know, that were represented. I'm Pueblo out from New Mexico. That's my family line. So those aren't my people. So I think there is a responsibility that I have as a writer um, to go and make sure that I'm representing those people right. Those aren't, those aren't my direct ancestors. We have a lot of kinship as native folks, but you know, those, uh, I think it's, you know, for me, it was really important that we had the, we'll say blessings, um, you know, and, and validity from the community itself and, and, and that responsibility. So, you know, sitting down and starting to tackle the writing on this was really about, you know, like, um, how do we do this? How do I do this in a way that is responsible? How do I do this in a way that, you know, that, that puts forward the best that we can about these people of the time and also the people currently, because the descendants um, from the Conestoga. So it was really about learning, you know, so learning about that, the research process, um, and then the back and forth with Will is, was, you know, is, uh, with, there was the historicals that we, we chronicle that actually in the, in the manuscript itself, right? So we, we have sort of the behind the scenes, which I always loved saying, like, how did this, you know, how did these conversations take place? And, uh, you know, it was, it was very, for me, it was a wonderfully fluid process you know, where, where the creativity was allowed to flourish as well as, you know, the making sure that we, we were still within the parameters that we know historically, because there is a historical record that goes with this. Um, although we took it from the indigenous and native perspective, the Conestoga perspective. So that gave us a little bit of, of leeway to kind of tell the story that we wanted to tell. And, you know, and then also to make sure that the voices you know, of the multiple parties were all in, included with this, you know, from our historians to the native folks in the space. So that's kind of where we were, um, that's what we landed on. It was, it was a great process. There's, there's an indigenous people's Comic-Con? Yeah, there's an indigenous Comic-Con. Uh, I founded it uh, 2016, so four and a half years ago. Um, the idea was to bring a whole bunch of Native creatives and artists and actors and, uh, you know, storytellers and science fiction folks, et cetera, into one location and have our own cosplayers and have our own Comic-Con. And you said you're Pueblo? Yes. Your background. Was that much of a part of your life when you were growing up? I mean, were you told much about it? Oh, absolutely. My dad was, uh, my dad was the chair of Native Studies, uh, the first chair of Native Studies at the University of New Mexico. I mean, I grew up within this, you know, in the, in, in, you know, I grew up actually on both coasts, but my dad was really clear and my mom supportive. my mom's non-native, but mom was really supportive of making sure that we, we knew our heritage, you know, that, that my family comes from the Pueblo of Laguna, um, you know, uh, Hanu Kawaik, we call ourselves Kawaik, which is our, our traditional name for ourselves. Um, so I, I learned a lot of that. And then in my twenties, I came back home to teach. So I actually started teaching at Laguna Akama High School. Um, you know, teaching Native kids out there from my own community. So yeah, it was really important growing up with that. And and my dad, like it wasn't, I'll say it's really interesting because it wasn't overt. It wasn't like, it was like, it was like Native, you know, like kind of like what you see. And But it's, it, it was all just like, it's just what we did. You know, uh, we went to powwows. We would hang out with all the Native folks. That's That's where my dad was most comfortable. And me growing up, that's how I became most comfortable. So that's what I looked for. Um, and, and then- and Washoyo, um, is was that much of your upbringing, your ancestry? Uh, um, <laughs> no, I, I come from a tribe in California called the Tongva tribe. And um, 
we basically have had our entire land base taken away and we don't have reservation land. So we're kind of considered urban Indians. Um, my dad opened a cultural center and I was actually born up at the cultural center. It was on national park land um, and it's still in existence today, Satwewa in Newbury Park. So he helped found that and started in the, well, I was born in 84, so throughout the 80s. And we, we left uh, the um, premises from, I think 1990, because he kind of butted heads with the National Park Service. Um, so I was raised very much traditionally. He taught me a lot of plant medicine and with our stories and stuff, but I'm also mixed. My mom's Scottish, so there was a, a little bit of a disconnect. And then also not having um, members from our tribe anywhere close by to us besides direct family. So um, I grew up with my family and my family units and what they've taught me and you know our traditional stories and stuff, but we don't have land based anywhere really. We're not federally recognized um yeah so it's a little bit of a more modern i guess take on indigeneity and like a city yeah will i want to ask you a question right at the start of the book before you get into the text you have a, a black page with white letters on it very small it says history is complicated violence is simple whose line is that <laughs> that is lee's and i ought to let him tell the story about that <laughs> Go ahead, lee. i feel like we yeah. need a short we need it on a shirt now. <laughs> yeah, we really should. <laughs> a black shirt with white letters and a little something that says uh, something like, Will, Will, Will Fenton did not want this line. Um, <laughs> so here's the story. Uh, it's a great story, uh, actually, and, and, and we love telling this. Um, you know, so when we were taking the bus ride out to, uh, to Lancaster, to, to Conestoga Indian Town and um, coming out of Philly, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how we can create this narrative that incorporates multiple, um, you know, like multiple threads that don't coincide historically, like, you know, within a linear framework, right? So, because you have the stuff that happened with the Moravian uh, folks out of Philadelphia, you have the stuff that happened with the Conestoga folks, and it doesn't, narratively, it doesn't necessarily create the punctuation that you want narratively, because, you know, the Conestoga massacre happens prior to the Moravian you know, folks being brought in and the march on Philadelphia, right? And the, then, then the issue really becomes whose story is it? Because at that point, once the Moravians are sheltered, then it becomes a Ben Franklin story, right? Then it becomes another Paxton story. So my, my job was really to try and center this story around the native folks. So there was a narrative arc that had to happen. So I'm just kind of mulling over this and, and I love to talk. Both my colleagues know this very well. Um, I, I enjoy talking, it's, it's what I do very well. I, I like writing too, but um, um, I'm definitely a, you know, a, a, chatty, a chatty Lee. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be talking and we'll be talking, we'll be talking. And all of a sudden I just like get in this mode and I'll just stop talking. Will keeps it's like, you okay? You all right? Is everything okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to think this through. And he's like, is, is anything wrong? Like people are like, is anything wrong? Are you upset? I was like, no, I'm just trying to like, right now I'm just trying to, to write. So it, it struck me as we were driving out that, that history is complicated. It's really hard to pin down various things, but these acts of violence that happen are very simple um, because they're, they're, they're moments of madness. They're moments of, of uh, extremism. And, and, I, and, and I think the line for me became a counterpoint to each other is that History has context, history has nuance, history has, you know, all these things of how we get to this moment of violence. And then the moment of violence changes things so dramatically and so drastically and so significantly in one, in one instance. And, and so it was a very simple line. And, 
And then uh, I put it out there and I remember, you know, I was like, history is, uh, you know, history is simple, violence is complex. Uh, history is complex, violence is simple. Um, and, uh, and I remember too, like Will said it and it was just like, I don't know about this. And this was us going back on the computer. I don't know about this line. Like maybe we could try this, you know, but he kind of kept it open for folks. And some of our historians that read it were just like, that line is great. That line is fantastic. And it seems that everybody's kind of jumped on the line being like, that line is amazing. Funny enough, Will, for you, is that my wife also felt the same way, just in, as a general statement. She's like, no, violence is really complicated, has all sorts of whatevers. And I was like, babe, it's all about context. And then she read the comic. She's like, oh, this works just fine. And I was like, that's what I'm saying. It works fine because it's a single book and it works great. Um, so it was, it was really funny, the, the kind of the way that, that, that it went back. And, and I think uh -huh. it also speaks to Will's you know, um, editing in terms of, you know, the, you know, the, the collaborative creative process was really dynamic. And I was like, well, I mean, I really want the line, but you know, we can maybe find something to settle on. Will's like, you know what? seems like it's, it's the line that folks want. And wish you all said the same state. She was like, that line's great. Keep it. Yeah. I was like, I need to send an email. Like we need this in the book. Because I really loved it. And I thought it, it not only summarized, you know, what the book was about, but it also, just like we're showing here, it really opens up a dialogue back and forth on how people view violence and how people view history. And I think that is just such an important talking point. So I'm glad yeah. it's made. <laughs> Will, I want to ask you, uh, you want to tell this story from the perspective of the Conestogas or the Native Americans, but how, how did you find records where the Conestogas or the other natives told their own story as opposed to it told by Europeans? Yeah, so, so fortunately, the work that we had done at the library company on Digital Paxton did a lot of important preparatory work on this, uh, because this project, it started off as just really um, a way for me to show my work with these pamphlets from the 1760s, right? And it was really grounded in Philadelphia, so it was grounded at the library company, because um, for those of you who don't know the library company, we were founded by Franklin in 1731. We're the first subscription library of America. And so there's a lot of really great printed material at the library company. But when you get the manuscript material, it gets a little trickier. Like that's not our specialty. So when you're thinking about letters, you're thinking about diaries, you're thinking about treaty minutes, that's where we, you know, we had to start thinking about, well, where else can we look to find those materials? And so I've worked with a number of different archivists across Pennsylvania and actually across the country to get a lot of those resources digitized and added to digital Paxton. So we had this library of records from two dozen different cultural heritage institutions. And really what I was looking for were um, letters, diaries, and treaty minutes that either gave voice explicitly to the Conestoga or their um, trading partners, or <laughs> they were somehow mediated. So in the case of like treaty minutes, for example, they were recorded by Quakers mainly, who you know did a lot of trade with, um, with Delaware peoples. So, there's a problem there because, of course, it's still being expressed through a settler colonist. But at the same time, there are what, you know, are ostensibly full quotations from the different indigenous trading peoples. And there are so many records that we can draw from at places like Haverford College, like uh, the American Philosophical Society, that you can sort of cross-check. And so it was really about building this network of manuscript materials that you know, really give voice to people that never had access to a printing press. Because really the problem with the, the, the print emphasis is that it's not only about 
uh, giving voice specifically to white colonists. It's about um, white colonists who live in an urban center like Lancaster or Philadelphia who had means. So, I mean, that, that excludes all sorts of figures from this story. And you mentioned this digital Paxton. What is it again? And uh, what if people go to it, what do they get? Digital Paxton is this labyrinthine digital collection, which has grown along with all of my research. So it started off as just being explicitly focused on pamphlets. And so we scanned all the pamphlets and then we put in the full text so they're, they're searchable. It's just easier to work through. Uh, but it's grown to include uh, paintings and letters and diaries and broadsides like the big posters and political cartoons. So it's a digital collection of all those materials, but that includes all sorts of educational materials developed by high school and university faculty, as well as, um, you know, context. So essays written by literary scholars and historians and visual culture scholars. I guess this question goes to to Lee and uh, show you uh, will show you um, there's a scene in this book that I think takes place in in around Germantown or in it was called Indian Town where there is an English soldier talking to a, a, a Native American and he says I should remind you to show gratitude to those of us who have ensured that you may continue to live in our colony can you describe that scene and what how you came up with that one and uh, and what it meant to you? Yeah. So that uh, when we when we do that 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 actually I think takes place in downtown Philadelphia because that's the <laughs> when they brought in the uh, the Lenape into Philly for their protection. And at this time, this you know because it happens after the massacre of the Conestoga, um, you know there there was a couple of things that I really wanted to strike out with that scene. One was sort of the you know pejorative pedantic, you know, patriarchal nature of, you know, of the, of, of the colonial empire at the time towards their native wards. So I wanted to make sure that we, we brought that scene to life with that, you know, and, and, and saying that essentially, like, it's all, it's all nice to start with, where it's just like, hey, everybody remember that, you know, Ben Franklin has, you know, solved these problems and, you know, all this other stuff. And, and the woman's response that's there is, listen, we can see what you've been printing about us. We're not blind and we're not dumb, you know? And, and this is, you know, like we know English and, and this is really like disrespectful. And that response is, you know, is very much the, the colonial response is like, well, thank, you know, be thankful that you're not all dead on the plains, right? So you should just be thankful for the, you know, that, that we have deigned to protect you, that we have deigned to take care of you. And I think that's really what I wanted to strike at was especially colonial relations at the time, which was sort of a ward state um, and, and, and how it's been kind of throughout history, right? This idea of like, you know, there, but for the grace of, you know, of us that you continue to exist. And, and I, you know, and, and also to, to continue to center it around the, the indigenous experience. It's not that, you know, like, like we wanted to paint the fact that the Quakers, for whatever reasons, good hearted or not, did take up arms, right? They did take up arms to defend the Moravians, whether they were doing it because there was an immediate threat, whether they were doing it because they believed in the rights of these individuals and they wanted to take care of them. You know, that's a slightly lost to history and politics than the politics of history, but also wanted to portray the fact that, you know, the native folks there, that, you know, they were intelligent, they recognized what was happening to them and that they got to speak out about it too, that they weren't just gonna be kind of rolling over being like, oh, thank you so much for, for taking care of us that we didn't get killed. It was more like, hey, you know what? This is kind of trashy, like, what is this? 
what is this pamphlet? What, why are you showing native women? Why are you showing me? You know, I, I mean, we're good, and especially at the time, is the, they were very Christianized. So this also went against Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. their, their, their indigenized Christianity. The whole point is like, you're painting us as prostitutes, you know, for Quakers, we're good Christian people. And this is how you're trying to portray us. Like, what is this about? So that was really also a questioning of like what we're seeing in the media um, back then and even now uh, about the way that Native folks were portrayed. So that was that was why I wrote the scene the way that I did. And I think Wishoyo, you know, illustrated it quite marvelously. I was going to bring that same uh, issue up that they weren't just, you know, savage people brought in from their, you know, tribe into the city. They had made such life changes to try to adapt to, you know, the current events and to adapt to the city that they were being brought into. They were Christianized, they adopted Western clothing, and they also, you know, probably had to forego their traditional, um, the things that they would make traditionally and also their food gathering practices fit in with city life and either work as domestic servants work manufacturing, you know, things that are outside of their traditional uh, realm. So they really did make every effort to adapt to, you know, the world at large. And there, I think, is a lot more of them, you know, trying to fit into that society um, and then being hit back with the, the colonists just saying, you know, like, you're lucky to be alive. Like, and what else could they do? Change their religion, change their, their entire lifestyle, you know, to, to try to maintain themselves and keep themselves alive basically so. yeah i would also add to that um so we're talking about two different groups here so in philadelphia we're talking about the moravian lene lenape peoples and those would have been brought in from bethlehem lehigh university right um thoroughly assimilated thoroughly integrated into trade networks um most of them had english names most of them spoke english wore english dress mm -hmm. And that's very much parallel with what you saw in Conestoga. Conestoga was based on Conestoga Manor. That was a reservation set aside by William Penn with the founding of Pennsylvania. Throughout the 18th century, this was a heterogeneous, um, intermixed group of different uh, indigenous peoples, but also really close trading relationships with the neighboring colonists who lived on Conestoga Manor. So, I mean, like, there are diaries that go back and they're talking about the white kids and the Indian kids playing together. So when the Paxton boys targeted the Conestoga uh, Indian town, this was a repudiation of William Penn's idea of a peaceable kingdom. And the fact that they did this in broad daylight, that they burnt the village to the ground, that they desecrated the bodies, it was a political act. You mentioned uh, some of the sites you visited while you were doing the research for this book. How much of a, a Native American presence is there in Pennsylvania right now? I'll uh, start us off here. So um, similar to what um, uh, Wishoya was describing with her tribe being sort of not federally recognized, there actually aren't any federally recognized tribes in Pennsylvania, which makes drawing these connections actually really complicated because the Delaware people uh, from whom Curtis Zuniga, our advisor, um, is a representative, are down in Oklahoma. Uh, there are Lene Lenape and Delaware's peoples uh, still in Pennsylvania, but they're not officially registered. So there's like sort of a lot of informal networks and Curtis was instrumental in connecting us with those folks. And he created the introduction with this small organization called the Circle Legacy Center, 
which is based out of Lancaster. And it's sort of this group for all the different indigenous peoples who live out there. So you have Haudenosaunee, you have folks that identify as Lene Lenape, you have folks that identify as Seneca, all living there practicing and they meet at this old um, Mennonite church in, in, uh, in uh, Lancaster. So it's one of those things where if we hadn't had that connection through our advisory board, through Curtis Zenega, we would have never known how to get in touch with those folks, or at least I wouldn't have, and it probably wouldn't have been nearly as successful a project. Well, and I will say that there's still a there, there's still a bit of a holdover too of some folks. I think up until the early 2000s, there was a Native Center, uh, an American Indian Center in Philadelphia, and it, it got disbanded. There was some stuff with the property, and I think they also still have the the Chief Tamanen um, uh, statue that's statue. down in there. Yeah. So there is so there is still there. some. Definitely, definitely some representation, you know, from from the Lenape folks, from from the the early settlers, the the original the original peoples of Philadelphia, in that space. What we know from my perspective, and I don't know the exact counts, or I do, but I have to go look them up, um, is that the majority of native native communities live in urban metropolitan areas, right? So seventy to eighty percent of of Native Americans live in metropolitan areas. So we know that there is a population within. The Eastern Seaboard, you know, within the Philadelphia area, within Lancaster, we know that there is a population, you know, up through New York, um, and very strong populations, and oftentimes sort of ebbs and flows about the strength of those populations. And I think that's one of the things that we set out to do with the book as well, was also to showcase the Eastern stories, because so much of the American consciousness is dominated with the, the Wild West, the Old West uh, of Native identity, right? The horseback and the the feathers and all the rest of that, which is, it is part of the story, but it's not the only part of the story. There were so many other native, you know, instances of tragedy, of brilliance, of, you know, incredibleness that we got to before that. And I think that that's, you know, that's what we wanted to kind of showcase and showcase that like at the end, it was one of the things we show you and I talked about was that we wanted to showcase that native folks are still in existence in the same location, right? They're still there in Lancaster. They still meet at this Mennonite church and they still walk the area. I hate to do this, but unfortunately we're out of time. Our guests have been Lee Francis IV, Wishoyo Alvitre, and Will Fenton, and they are the authors of this book, Ghost River, The Fall and Rise of the Conestoga. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.